over the last few years, I've realized that a large portion of the work that I've been doing um, on bird color, on bird song, on the evolution of display behavior is really about one fundamental and important topic, and that's beauty, the role of beauty in nature and, and how it evolves. So a question I'm asking myself a lot now is, what is beauty and how does it evolve? And what are the consequences of beauty and its existence in, in nature? Um, there's a long history of people thinking about ornament in nature, those aspects of the body or the behavior of, of organisms that, that uh, are attractive, that, uh, that, that function uh, in perception of uh, other organisms. Um, usually we think about this in terms of uh, sexual selection or mate choice, but there's a bunch of other contexts in which it can occur, like flowers uh, attracting pollinators, and fruits attracting frugivores, um, or even uh, the opposite, uh, a, a rattlesnake or a, or a poisonous uh, a butterfly uh, scaring away predators. These are all aspects of the body that function not in... Uh, the regular way, but in, 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 in perception. So if we think about, for example, a plant uh, and the parts of the plant, trying to explain why are they the way they are, um, if we examine the roots, we could come up with a complete description of the roots in terms of, and their function, and their form, in terms of their physical function in the soil. Uh, they're uh, grabbing into the substrate, they're absorbing water and minerals, they're helping the plant anchor itself, uh, they might even be interacting with uh, uh, fungus and bacteria in the soil. But we come up with a complete description of the, of the plants. And we have a theory for this, and that theory is, is, uh, is natural selection. However, if we think about the flower, we realize that many parts of the flower, including its color, the shape of its petals, um, its fragrance, function through the perceptions of other animals. That is, the bee or the hummingbird comes along and regards the flower, asks itself, do I want to forage at that flower now or today? And then either decides to do so or not. And as a result of that, we have a different functional substrate. It's functioning in the brain. It's functioning in perception of that other organism. So to come up with a complete description of the function of a flower, we need a whole new kind of data. Not just a description of the physical world, but something else inside, if you will, the mind of this other organism, this cognition. Right? Um, what I'm coming to conclude is that this is a big watershed in evolutionary biology, and that there's a distinct process that occurs when we have uh, evolution uh, occurring uh, through a, a cognitive uh, or, 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 or mental substrate. That is, when it's about attracting uh, another individual. Now, this area of... Or I would refer to this area as aesthetic evolution. Um, and I think the main topics in aesthetic evolution are the origin of beauty. Of course, these are two words that are not often involved in the sciences. In fact, I think sciences have been afraid of beauty, afraid of the aesthetic, right? And this has to do with the fact that um, um, these uh, terms refer to subjective experiences. 
they refer to something that we sort of unknowable, unmeasurable going on inside the, the, the cognitive capacities of other organisms. And of course, we have difficulty in understanding what's complete, what's going on in somebody else's mind when they uh, eat rhubarb pie or smell a flower or, 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 or like or don't like a certain kind of music. Right? Um, and so scientists are justifiably uh, uh, afraid of talking about subjective experience. And it's, for the most part, we've ceded this entire area to other fields like the humanities. But I think that uh, the way nature is, the nature of flowers, the nature of bird song and bird plumages, implies that subjective experiences are fundamentally important in biology. That the world looks the way it does, it is the way it is, because of their vital importance as sources of selection. In, in organic diversity. And as a result, that we need to structure evolutionary biology to recognize the aesthetic, recognize the subjective experience. Now, we will never be able to nail it down exactly as, uh, we, uh, as, as, many, as we do many scientific questions. Uh, we don't know what's going on in my brain or your brain uh, with the experience of red or, or what it's like to listen to a Mozart symphony and why some people might like certain things and others not. But in biology, we have a real interesting opportunity. Uh, for example, there are uh, uh, 10,000 or so species of birds in the world, and every single species of bird has a slightly different song and a different courtship display and a different kind of way of attracting a mate and communicating uh, socially. Right? And those have all evolved as a result of subjective experiences. Do I like this mate or not? And making a, a sensory ev uh, evaluation, a sensory perception, a cognitive evaluation, and then a choice. These elements, sensory evaluation and choice, that, that give rise to this, this aesthetic uh, evolutionary phenomenon. So quantifying or, 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 or describing the mental state of an individual, whether it's an individual bird listening to a bird song or me, it, 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 it is very, very challenging. But one of the things that we can do in biology is to study the way in which subjective experiences evolve. We may not know what's happening in, in the brain of a particular bird species, but by studying the fact that it has diverged in its preferences from other warblers or other gulls or other... Uh, 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 woodpeckers indicates that we can study the evolution of subjective experience within comparative biology. So it's a little bit like uh, uh, like uh, the history of physics when uh, they had a hard problem. You couldn't uh, uh, actually identify uh, the velocity of the electron and its position and its direction of motion all at the same time. So what did they do? They had a hard problem, but they didn't say, okay, we're going to shelve that problem for some other discipline to deal with. They created new tools, quantum mechanical uh, 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 mechanisms, the quantum mechanical concepts that would allow them to study the hard question of the position and velocity of the electron probabilistically. In the same way, we can't know what's going on in the brain of any individual organism in when they make a subjective evaluation, but we can study how those preferences evolve. We can, as if, if you will, look at the history of diversification preferences. And this is a new way to get into 
this area of the evolution of subjective experience in, in, in a way that people have been afraid of. And I think that's why evolutionary biology has a special role for understanding uh, this aspect of nature, which, which I would call the aesthetic. Um, a lot of uh, scientists would probably be still allergic to the words beauty and aesthetic in science. They think that doesn't belong. Okay, so maybe you've got some concepts. We can progress with them without using those loaded words. But those loaded words, or what people think of as loaded words, are actually um, effective. They're communicating exactly what it is we want to get at, which is uh, that uh, powerful feeling of, huh, I like that, which motivates organisms uh, across the board. Now, some people think, well, well, how can a bee have a subjective experience? How can they experience beauty? Clearly, there's a very simple system uh, responding in a mechanistic way to, 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 uh, to, to stimuli like flowers. If that were the case, if flowers were just specifically designed to push the buttons of bees and make them come and forge because they were so irresistible, then all flowers would converge on that same button. They'd be the same form. They'd be pushing those bees' buttons and making him forage, uh, her forage, on that, on that flower. But the fact is that flowers are diverse. They're all different. They're all evolving to be memorably attractive, seductive. They're all attract, uh, you know, appealing to that bee who says, huh, do I want to forage on that or today? And, and of course, to the bees, some of those flowers like nachos. They're cheap and irresistible, but others of them are special. They're like uh, carrot cake or whatever. You can go a long way looking for that thing and, and, then, and then enjoy it when you get it, right? And that's what the bees are doing, and that's why flowers are diverse, because of the existence and the power of subjective experience as, a, as, an, as an agent, as an agency in the evolution of, of, of organisms. After Darwin described the mechanism of evolution by natural selection in The Origin of Species, he had a big problem, and that was the explanation of ornament in nature those features of the body of animals and plants that function not in furthering uh, the struggle for survival, but in communication with other individuals, and often in the context of mating or ecological interactions. Um, and he got a lot of criticism for this, and, and so he was worried. He wrote to Asa Gray, a great American botanist in, in 1861, and said, uh, the sight of a peacock's tail whenever I look at it, makes me sick. So uh, Darwin was kind of a sickly guy. He took a lot of this very seriously. Uh, he took it to heart and, and worried and studied. And in a little over a decade later, in 1871, he uh, wrote a second book, The Descent of Man, in which he described the evolution by sexual selection. Sexual selection was distinct from natural selection in that it had to do with the differential reproductive success. Not survival up until the moment of mating, but differential access to mates as a result of two possible mechanisms. One was a male-male competition or competition within the sex. The other was female choice or mate choice of one sex for uh, members of the opposite sex. And Darwin elaborated and predicted how uh, male-male competition can, should give rise to uh, armaments like antlers and large body size like elephant seals, and that mate choice should give rise to ornaments like birdsong, beautiful bird plumage, and, uh, and, 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 and many other uh, uh, ornamental features. Um, 
Darwin used explicitly aesthetic language to describe his theory. He described uh, the uh, mating preferences of birds as standards of beauty. Uh, he described female birds as having an aesthetic faculty. Uh, he described birds as the most aesthetic of all organisms, excepting, of course, man. Uh, and, and, and he was greatly criticized at the time. In fact, um, his theory implied that female aesthetic judgments were a major force in evolution. And that was countered immediately by misogynistic responses who described female choice as vicious feminine caprice. In those days, vicious meant full of vice. Uh, so in other words, it was even immoral, this, this, this theory. Uh, in particular, Darwin was criticized for proposing that there was some other theory uh, that might explain, natural uh, might explain evolution other than natural selection, that the power of natural selection was its capacity to explain everything uh, and to be a universal explanation of the origin of biodiversity. His primary critic and his strongest and most persistent critic was the co-discoverer of natural selection, Alfred Russell Wallace. So uh, in the last decade or so of, of, uh, of, uh, of Darwin's life, Wallace and, 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 and Darwin were duking it out over the meaning of sexual selection, what it would be. Um, Wallace was um, uh, extremely negative about the prospect of uh, beauty and aesthetic having any role in nature. And he criticized the theory in many ways, but he couldn't criticize it entirely. And when he f admitted that it would occur or could occur, he said only under special conditions. And those special conditions would be when ornament actually was correlated with qualities that were demonstrably better in terms of natural selection. That is, longer life or better resources or better health. That is, when the trait had evolved some kind of meaning that the female would benefit from choosing. So today we think of Wallace as actually the guy who killed sexual selection theory. But actually what Wallace did was describe for the very first time the most popular model of sexual selection today, which is that ornament functions by providing a rich body of information about male or mate quality uh, that, that mates need to know. And the basis of which is, uh, it, 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 in this regard, that mate choice is basically about uh, improving uh, of the conditions of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of the offspring. Um, well, as a scientist, I don't really care that much about this piece of history, right? I mean, really, our job is to come up with the right theories that we have today. So I'm interested in what Darwin and Wallace thought in their debates, but it's not critical to science. And yet Darwin still has such an important status, intellectual status in the world today, uh, that um, this uh, Darwin-Wallace debate is sort of an interesting frame to think about the debate I think we should still be having. That is, I'm eager to revive the Darwin-Wallace debate in, 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 in current biology, uh, comparing Darwin's broader aesthetic perspective that recognizes that uh, sensory delight, attraction, subjective experience are really the agents of, of selection in these cases. And Wallace's honest advertisement quality indication model in which um, uh, the evolution of preference is controlled by a higher power and that higher power being adaptive uh, natural selection. 
Right. Uh, and so this is a debate that's happening right in the literature today and, and one that I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm eager to inspire. In essence, what I hope to do is to restore the Darwinian view, the legitimately Darwinian view. In fact, uh, the idea of honest advertisement uh, and quality indication were variantly anti-Darwinian back in the 1870s. Uh, and I think they still are. Uh, so modern neo-Darwinians uh, are really neo-Wallacians. Uh, they're not Darwinian in the slightest, in the sense that they have laundered out of Darwin's legacy uh, this history of a regard for aesthetics as, a, as, a, as an independent force in evolutionary biology, one that is uh, potentially uh, unhinged from, from, from natural selection. There is this popular uh, reductionist view of uh, neuroaesthetics, which it, it proposes, for example, that that uh, through a combination of brain imagery and understanding neural function that will understand how the structure of the brain uh, uh, dictates what things will be attractive and not. And this leads to a number of reductionist theories of aesthetics uh, uh, that, uh, for example, symmetry uh, and indicators of symmetry are particularly important. And, um, what any sort of review of art itself in, in, in human arts or uh, uh, aesthetic features in, 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 in organisms will show you that is that there ain't no rules uh, and that uh, rules are made to be broken uh, and that, uh, that there is something uh, irreducibly um, emergent about the way in which uh, subjective experiences evolve. And that has to do with, uh, with um, what happens when you remove the controlling force of natural selection and allow subjective experience to, to be its, an independent player? Uh, uh, the theory on this was actually first developed by uh, Ronald Fisher, who was uh, an evolutionary biologist in the early 20th century and the inventor of statistics and the t-test. And uh, 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 most people and statisticians don't even know that he was an evolutionary biologist. He was so so uh, so. But he came up with an idea where he said. Um, Essentially, if you have variation in, in preference, imagine uh, some females like birds that are, have uh, red tails and others like birds with blue tails. Um, and then you have males that have both blue and red tails. Well, not surprisingly, females who like red tails are going to find males who have red tails. Females who like blue tails are going to find males who have blue tails. And what happens is that as a result of selecting on, on male traits, mating preferences will become genetically correlated with the traits that they prefer. That is, variation in desire and variation in the, in the, in the objects of desire will become correlated or, 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 or uh, enmeshed, entrained evolutionarily. And what that means is that when individuals, through the action of their preferences, select on traits, they're also indirectly selecting on their own preference. And that means that preference is a self-organizing engine of, of evolution. That is, once you have popularity, then popularity itself can drive the evolution of ornament. And what that means is that beauty and the desire for it, preferences, co-evolve with one another. They are changing one of the peacock's tail as it evolves, is transforming the female's brain and her capacity to understand what beauty is. And her preferences are also transforming the tale, that they evolve along a, 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 an entrained path together. 
right? And the different species are all evolving in different directions, and that's why uh, nature looks the way it does. The, the sexual selection mechanism that I'm interested in, uh, or, or that I'm a big fan of, really goes from, uh, from Darwin to Fisher, uh, into more recently to mathematical genetic models by uh, Russ Landy and Mark Kirkpatrick. And this is sort of the intellectual lineage of that group. And of course, the opposite have gone from Wallace to a reinvention by Zahavi uh, to, uh, of course, lots of modern notions uh, about how uh, ornament should evolve to be honest advertisements. So we have this, uh, this uh, arbitrary mechanism where natural selection uh, is not really involved. And, and we have uh, 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 a, a, an honest mechanism where natural selection is the controlling force. Right? And, and so these theories have been around for a while, and, and, and of course, been lots of conflict on it. So, so my take has been to observe that, uh, essentially, the, um, the adaptationists now uh, rule uh, by um, essentially rejecting falsification. It's almost a faith-based enterprise in the sense that what people do is they go to nature, they examine a trait, whether it's a, a patch of plumage or a, or a a, 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 you know, a color of a feather or a bird song, and and uh, and they examine everything they can to try to show that it's somehow correlated with some indicator of quality or some measure of direct benefits um, or good genes. And when they fail to do so, uh, they conclude, oh, we're still right. We just haven't worked hard enough to show how it could be true. And when they find that it is true, they say, aha. Our theory is confirmed. And so as a result, what we have in the literature is a bunch, it's like a weird bonsai tree. It's composed only of the examples that fit the theory. And of course, all those failures to conform to the adaptive theory are evidence completely consistent with the arbitrary model. And so they protected themselves from this. And, and of course, this goes back to a, a, a quote by Alan Graffin, who said, uh, to believe in the, uh, uh, the Fisher-Landy mechanism without abundant proof uh, is would be methodologically wicked. So there's not many are not many ideas in even in evolutionary biology that have been described as wicked. But arbitrary uh, sexual selection is, is one of them. Um, so there's a lot riding on this. And my gambit recently is to is to basically uh, propose that the Fisher model, the arbitrary model, the Landy Kirkpatrick model, is essentially the null hypothesis. Um, it's the prediction of the consequence of genetic variation in traits and preferences in the absence of natural selection on preferences, right? And so it's the, what we should expect in the, you know, a, a large part of the time. Um, in essence, the null model or the null mechanism is, is, is a tough sell uh, because basically this is the shit happens idea. Well, the latest version of this, of course, is that beauty happens, uh, and that's that's that that's my new mantra, right? But in essence, it's a, it's a hard sell because a lot of people in science, and particularly in evolutionary biology, um, got into the field because of the buzz they got by explaining things in terms of adaptation, mm -hmm. and so they want they're eager to uh, to, to 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 confirm that model, and they see. Uh, the other model as basically intellectually unsatisfying or potentially wicked even, right? And so uh, it's a tough sell, but I think that uh, like uh, uh, the neutralist selectionist debate uh, that went on in genetic evolution or 
uh, community uh, assembly and community ecology, uh, that you can't really do these kinds of science in the absence of a null hypothesis. And that there is a perfectly legitimate and absolutely worthwhile null mechanism for the evolution of the diversity of signals uh, and aesthetic experiences, and that is the, the, the arbitrary Lady Kirkpatrick model. So uh, I'm proposing this. Uh, I hear a lot of silence. A lot of times people will read the paper and say, well, I liked what you set up to here, but then I had this problem. Of course, I, I think I can resolve those problems quickly. Uh, but yet there isn't like this, uh, this big uh, 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 movement to, in, uh, to adopt null models in sexual selection. Um, what's going to have to happen? I think a lot of it is about uh, differential recruitment bringing new people into the field who are fascinated by the, the prospect of studying aesthetic evolution. And that's why I'm uh, here talking to you today. So, so, so uh, the adaptationist approach is the one that, 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 that uh, 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 views ornament as an embodied piece of uh, information, quality information. Mm -hmm. The arbitrary model is the one in which... Uh, uh, traits and preferences co-evolve with one another uh, uh, purely in an aesthetic fashion and, and w without anything other than the benefits of, uh, of, of popularity. Um, the adaptationist position is a lot like uh, the efficient market hypothesis in, in, uh, in economics. That is, that the value of a commodity, how worthwhile this may, uh, might be, or the value of your house... Uh, is actually explicitly measurable and will always approach a, a real and a value because all the players are honest uh, and, and rational, right? Uh, the, the, uh, uh, the aesthetic approach or the arbitrary model is a lot like the uh, 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 irrationally exuberant market bubbles. And, of course, going all the way up to the moment of the crash of the, of the housing market and the consequent economic disaster that happened across the globe uh, in 2007 and 2008, um, you had efficient market theorists saying that bubbles were impossible. They, were, they, 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 they couldn't exist and that, that even describing them was, was, was a silly exercise. These guys are like the ardent uh, adaptationists who would describe uh, 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 the Fisher-Landy hypothesis as, uh, as methodologically wicked. We have a real parity. Uh, and, and I think, so uh, in economics, of course, a lot of people that got into to these views uh, were the kind of people that read too much Ayn Rand as children. And, and they go out into the world to find the, 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 the environment that supports the kinds of thoughts they have. Uh, and, and I would maintain that a lot of people in evolutionary biology have come into evolutionary biology because they were attracted to the concept of adaptation. That they were uh, they were influenced to go into the field so that they could have this buzz of explaining the complex in terms of a law like uh, overriding idea and and uh, uh, and since aesthetics uh, can co-evolve in lots of different directions uh, in in different species it it it, 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 it's, it evades that and that's why Wallace got so exercised about Darwin that's why Alan Graffin described the Fisher-Landy mechanism as as methodologically wicked. Um, it is uh, a, a, a real existential threat to the, to the global law-like power of, of natural selection uh, to explain biodiversity. I'm an evolutionary biologist, uh, have done evolutionary biology for my entire career, uh, almost exclusively, and yet um, I have been realizing in recent years that 
for the most part, I find uh, adaptation to be kind of boring. Right? I mean, I know it's ubiquitous. I know it's important at all. And yet, yet uh, as an idea, as an intellectual uh, uh, um, concept, it's, it's, for me, it's mostly over. Uh, and in fact, what's really interesting is the fact that, that the contingency of history and biodiversity uh, and, uh, give rise to all sorts of, uh, of, 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 of things that are much more complicated, much more quirky, and much more fascinating than the law-like property of, of, uh, of, of adaptation. And so um, uh, this has affected lots of my work where I've been doing phylogenetics, uh, uh, evolution development, uh, you know the physics of color production, and all these areas where where uh, where contingency and history have a controlling uh, controlling force. Now, what do you call all that together? I, I don't really know. It's a, it's sort of a it's sort of an evolutionary structuralism where the contingency of history is is uh, uh, and uh, uh, is an important active uh, uh, principle in in in, in how in how uh, evolution proceeds. One of the important uh, consequences of an aesthetic view in evolutionary biology is, is, um, has to do with the 20th century history of, of evolution. And that, that period of time when, when uh, Wallace was successful in redefining all sexual selection as merely a form of, sec- of natural selection. So there was no, uh, no theory of mate choice, no aesthetic theory available. This is uh, basically the period between uh, uh, 1880 and, uh, and 1970. One of the interesting features during this period when evolutionary biology had no concept of mate choice uh, and, and, and all, all mating was under the control of natural selection, that's also the period of time at which uh, essentially all of uh, evolutionary biology was dominated by eugenic theory. And what people don't like to think about is that essentially every evolutionary biologist in the early 20th century was either an ardent eugenicist or a happy fellow traveler. And that this is exactly the period at which many of the concepts that we still use in evolutionary biology were codified and defined. That the core theory of mathematical theory, population genetics, was created. Right? And those influences don't just go away when we say, oh, we're no longer eugenic. And in fact, if you stick with the hardline adaptationist view of sexual selection in which uh, mate choice is always for those features of your mate that indicate quality, then essentially all mate choice is about natural selection. It's all about getting ahead. Right? In contrast, if you have a, 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 an aesthetic theory where sometimes things, merely because they're popular, evolve to be uh, uh, more present, you have essentially an opportunity for decadence to evolve. For, for, for not just costly, honest advertisements, but things that are genuinely costly. Right? And in essence, by adopting a null hypothesis, a null model of mate choice, in which, or evolution by mate choice, in which uh, uh, arbitrary aesthetic traits can evolve, you permanently inoculate evolutionary biology from this eugenic past. And I think that's critically important because it's not gone away just because we'd like it to. We have to build a science that prevents us from doing uh, uh, so eugenic science again. And, and I think that that's, uh, 
when you think about genomics and you think about uh, evolutionary psychology uh, and, the, and the lack of, of a null model, the possibility of an aesthetic null uh, in, in, in any of that research program, uh, I, I think it's a, it's a real and, and, and present problem. And that's something I think could be transformative for evolutionary biology. Eugenics was the science of, uh, of human racial superiority, that certain races had evolved as a consequence of natural selection to be uh, to be superior to others, right. okay. and 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 it led to a concern both for uh, genetic superiority. Eugenic means uh, you know well-born, mm-hmm. uh, true genes, and that's uh, essentially uh, good genes is one of the honest advertisement theories. It's, it's almost the same terminology. Uh, eugenics was also concerned with uh, with uh, uh, with class and money and 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 the environment. These are what we now refer to as direct benefits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so both of the concerns of eugenics are still actively involved in adaptationist theories about mate choice. Mm-hmm. Right now, the field of uh, sexual selection and, and, and the evolution of mate choice is uh, really dominated by the adaptationist school, um, the Wallacean position that uh, all traits and preferences evolve because... Uh, they're correlated with uh, features that are actually legitimately, explicitly better, right? That, that and and um, um, the uh, the arbitrary uh, position has not gotten a lot of uh, uh, gotten a lot of uh, play in the last few years. Um, uh, and so I'm really trying to create uh, a new way of looking at the field essentially to destabilize the field by proposing that no models ought to be used uh, and, and force a new scientific standard on the field so that uh, this confirmationist science, the idea that the only thing that we get published are the things that everybody is comfortable already with those ideas, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and, and change it a little bit. Um, I think this is very much like the neutralist selectionist debate in population genetics, which occurred back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and that's the kind of debate I'd like to start. Um, and uh, I, I think that the history there intellectually demonstrates that you can't do evolutionary science uh, without a null model. And that uh, that means that there's only one way this is going to go, and that is uh, legitimately accepting uh, a broader aesthetic definition of how mate choice could work with restricted in some circumstances to, to the adaptationist position. Uh, and uh, that's, that's where I'd like to see it head. And I think it's going to only happen through differential recruitment, bringing new people into the field uh, that are, are attracted to evolutionary biology specifically because it can do this thing that evolutionary biology cannot do right now. One of the interesting consequences of the adaptive uh, or adaptationist view of, uh, of, of sexual selection, the, the Wallacean view, is that um, we don't really need an account of why females prefer what they do, or we don't need to focus our attention on the female as an evolutionary agent. And the reason is because we have a larger, broader, powerful theory of adaptation that describes what the female's doing. And so we don't actually have to construct a theory where we recognize, uh, if you will, aesthetic agency, the capacity of females to, to influence the evolution of their species. But if you eliminate the natural selection or, or admit that it's sometimes it's present and sometimes it's not, then we have to ask the question, 
What are females doing? And why do they choose the preferences they do? And this has given rise in my own work to a whole series of really fascinating research programs on the area of sexual conflict. And that is what happens when mate choice and mate competition uh, conflict with one another. And a perfect example of this is the case of uh, waterfowl or ducks. And in ducks, uh, the males do these elaborate displays. They have the bright green head, quack, 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 and, the, and, the, and, and, the, and, the, and, and all the, you know, make way for ducklings, all the little movements that they do. Um, the females are choosing on the basis of those displays, and as a result, all different duck species have different plumages and different colors, colors uh, to their body. Um, Meanwhile, there's another force going on. It turns out that there's a lot of male-male competition. And indeed, this goes back to some deep reproductive biology of the ducks, which is that ducks are one of the few birds that still have a penis. It's a very weird structure. Uh, it uh, has explosive erection. Uh, erection mechanisms are lymphatic instead of vascular. It's stored outside in, inside the cloaca, and comes flying out. Uh, and they can get very lengthy, up to 40 centimeters, which is over a foot long on a duck that is itself uh, not even a foot long. Uh, it's an extraordinary piece of biology here. So what's going on in these ducks? Well, in lots of ducks, there's a lot of forced copulation. It's the equivalent of rape in ducks. Uh, and in species where there's a lot of forced copulation, um, uh, females uh, have evolved or co-evolved complex vaginal morphologies that frustrate the intromission or frustrate entry of the penis during forced copulation. So, for example, the penis of ducks is, uh, is, is counterclockwise coiled uh, and often has uh, 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 ridges or even teeth-like structures on the outside. Uh, in this case, in these species, the female has evolved a vagina that has dead-end cul-de-sacs so that if the penis goes down the, the wrong direction, it'll get bottled up and doesn't proceed to be closer to the oviduct and closer to, uh, to uh, further up the oviduct and closer to the eggs um, or to the ova. Uh, and then above the cul-de-sacs, the, the, the duck vagina has clockwise coils. So they're literally anti-screw devices that prevent, chirally prevent, uh, intromission during forced copulation. What's happened here is that females have evolved the capacity to prevent uh, fertilization due to forced copulation most of the time. This is a, this is an indication of 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 uh, of an evolution of a female advantage through sexual conflict. How does this happen, right? And what does this have to do with beauty? Well. The way in which it happens is, it, imagine that if a female obtains the mate that she desires, he's got the bright green head, he's got the quack, quack, quack that she loves. Well, her male offspring are going to inherit the genes for those attractive traits that she likes. And her male offspring will therefore benefit by being preferred by other females of the species who evolve the same preferences. Now, if she's forcibly fertilized by rape, then her offspring will inherit either a random trait, because it didn't uh, pass the test of her preference, or will be, will, they'll inherit traits that have been specifically rejected by other females. And therefore, her male offspring will not be as sexually attractive to other females. And that's a genetic cost to her. That's an indirect genetic cost on the, the, her, uh, to, to her fitness. And as a consequence, she'll suffer a cost to, to sexual coercion. So those individuals that have vaginal morphologies that allow them to achieve what they desire 
will benefit because other females will reward them by liking uh, and preferring their offspring. So this is a, how, about how the evolved normativity, the, the co-evolved concept, if you will, of what is sexy, what females prefer, provides leverage that females can use to evolve, to expand their sexual autonomy, to expand their control, their agency in the face of sexual violence. Now, in the case of the ducks, um, one of the problems with this mechanism is that it's purely defensive. So the female evolves a more complicated vagina, the male evolves a bigger penis. She gets even more uh, 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 counterclockwise or clockwise coils, and, and he'll evolve a, a penis that has a thorny uh, tooth-like structures on it. Right? So it's an arms race. Uh, and that's not good. There's a lot of uh, wasted investment. There is, however, another alternative, and that's when female choice can act aesthetically to actually remodel or aesthetically change, transform uh, male behavior in a fundamental way. And a great example is the bowerbirds. The bowerbirds are frugivorous, fruiting, tropical birds from uh, Australia and New Guinea and nearby islands. And uh, what happens is the male uh, builds a construction, it's a bower, uh, it uh, often it consists of two walls of sticks uh, with a passageway in the middle. And he gathers all these materials, sometimes bones or berries or fruits or, 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 or flowers that are brilliantly colored or uh, uh, sometimes a pile of snail shells. Uh, and the female visits the bower and, uh, and chooses her mate based on the bower architecture and on the materials that he provides. Right. So uh, in this case... In the Bowerbirds, the male builds a seduction theater, right, at the behest of the female. It's evolving because females prefer it. They want this this uh, this aesthetic uh, architecture uh, in order to advance uh, uh, their their mate choices. What's interesting, of course, is that these structures are aesthetic, but they have this special property, which is that if the female's sitting inside the walls of the bower. In order, and the, the male displays in the front, showing off his, his, his cool stuff. Before he can copulate with her, he has to go back around the back of the bower. And that gives her a chance to pop out the front. So she is essentially protected from date rape. She can explore and see him in a close distance and all of his stuff. And yet she's protected from being jumped or sexually harassed by the male. And why? Because she has preferred those structures that provide her with a safe refuge in which to fulfill her aesthetic desires, right? So in this case, we have uh, in the Bowerbirds the evolution of aesthetic architecture which prevent forced copulation in the females. And that's a, another way in which females can use uh, the evolved normative concept of what is beautiful to advance their autonomy. Through through thinking about duck sex and uh, an aesthetic evolution, I really started to develop this scientific concept of sexual autonomy, the way in which uh, a co-evolved uh, concept of what's attractive provides a leverage for the advancement of of the freedom of of choice, freedom of made choice, um, and. I've worked on birds all my career with some uh, uh, little digressions on butterflies and beetles, but basically I'm an ornithologist, but that has led me to 
really start to, 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 to entertain the possibility of uh, aesthetic evolution in response to sexual conflict in human evolution. And one of the things that's notable about, uh, about humans is the transformation of, uh, 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 of, of, of male violence, right? We still have a species where 98 or 99% of the violence is, is still the result of male behavior. Uh, and yet uh, we're notably less violent uh, than our immediate uh, closest relatives, things like chimpanzees and gorillas. Uh, and one of the particular ways in which we're less violent is that uh, uh, is the moderation of, of, of sexual conflict in, 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 uh, in humans. Now, uh, to understand sort of where we got where we are, let's, let's imagine your typical old world monkey or gorilla or chimpanzee. The situation is, is if for females, is pretty grim. There's some uh, male that's uh, uh, in political, social control of, of your group or of you, uh, and he controls uh, most uh, of your of your of your uh, your uh, your sexual life. Uh, what happens then is that on occasion, when there's a social unrest, that male will be deposed, and a new male will come in. And one of the first things that these new males do is they go out and uh, kill all the babies, kill all the dependent young. Why? Because uh, lactation or breastfeeding prevents ovulation, prevents the reproduction. And so by killing all the offspring of the previous male, he is advancing his reproductive opportunity. All the females will go into estrus and he will have uh, even a sooner opportunity to advance his own fitness. So it's an incredibly selfish male behavior that evolves by male-male competition and has a huge negative impact on females. So back in the 80s, uh, uh, Sari, Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy and others established that one of the responses that females do to this sexual conflict is to mate multiply with other males in hopes of buying an insurance policy that should that guy become the dominant male, he'll be less likely to kill her child because he might be its father. But of course, like ducks, this just gives rise to an arms race. If the female starts uh, having sex with other males, then of course the dominant male is going to be much more likely to respond with force to reinforce his social control. Right? So you've got an arms race going on. Females are mating multiply, but it's not because they have desire that they're fulfilling they're just trying to make a best of a bad situation, right? They're trying to, uh, to, 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 to prevent the, the killing of their offspring. So what's changed about people? Well, your average gorilla or chimpanzee is really almost a, 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 an infanticidal maniac waiting for his moment. You know, and, you know, humans are pretty bad. We've enslaved each other. We, we have wars where we wipe each other out. We do all these. But, you know, one of the crimes you don't read about in the newspaper is males killing children for their own reproductive advantage. I'm interested in, 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 in the possibility that uh, aesthetic mate choice in humans, female choice, um, could have played a critical role in... Um, the remodeling of male-male competition, the by essentially by establishing that those features of, of of males that are associated directly with uh, with uh, uh, violent competition are unsexy, or more positively, that those features that are associated with advancing female autonomy. Uh, evolved to be to be to be uh, to be the, a new form of sexy, and that is uh, the kind of 
dynamic interaction you get between sexual conflict and aesthetic mate choice that we see in, in birds like bowerbirds and lecking birds and, and I think throughout, throughout the, uh, the bird world. Um, uh, what would these traits be? Well, one of the interesting things is that even though uh, human beings uh, evolved to be much larger than their chimp-like ancestors in, in body size, uh, they actually have gotten less different in size. Males and females are more similar in size uh, than our chimpanzees, right? And so this is exactly against the laws of allometry, which indicate that as you get bigger, that any differences between the sexes should get broader. So that means there's been active selection to reduce the difference in body size between males and females. I think that's very likely to be have been evolved through female mate choice. Another example uh, is no further than the human smile. All you got to do is say, look at our smile. We have canine teeth that are sexually monomorphic. Your All of our old world primate relatives, including our immediate uh, most close relatives, the gorillas and chimpanzees, the males have deadly weapons in their mouths, which human males lack. And the question is, uh, under what conditions are males going to give up their weapons? And the answer is really difficult. You got to get them uh, below the belt. And uh, it's interesting that uh, the, uh, of course, uh, the Greeks thought of this first. Uh, the play Lysistrata. Uh, set in, uh, in, uh, in, in Greece in uh, 800 or 400 BC or so. And uh, in that, Lysistrata organizes the women of Greece and Sparta to, to, uh, to uh, um, uh, create a sex strike. They won't have any sex until the men call off the war uh, against Peloponnesia. And so, as a result, uh, eventually, after lots of comedy and sturm und drang, the, 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 the males relent, and the war is over, and everybody goes, back sleeping. <laughs> and so uh, uh, I think that th what that's perceived uh, interestingly uh, and appropriately is that females organized together can transform male-male social relationships through mate choice. That is uh, uh, the importance of bromance uh, I before romance. That, uh, that, 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 that there's something about um, uh, um, male cooperation, which is particularly attractive uh, 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 to women, and that that has been, had a transformative effect. Of course, this is a really important issue. Um, everything we know that's distinctive about human biology is predicated upon the lengthening of the childhood, child dependency, and parental investment, whether it's the brain size, the, 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 the development of a language capacity, uh, culture and the capacity to learn culture, material culture, technology, all of this required having longer uh, growing up times and, and uh, a longer time to get smarter and smarter individuals, right? So solving the infanticide problem was a big deal. Uh, there would be very, very difficult to evolve, to invest more in every offspring if potentially a third or a quarter of all offspring are murdered as a result of social violence, right? And so uh, perhaps one of the most key features in the evolution of humanity is the, is the, is the, is the solving of sexual conflict and infanticide problem. And that's why I think uh, aesthetic evolution uh, and its interaction with sexual conflict uh, has a fascinating um, uh, um, role to play in understanding human, human nature and the evolution mm -hmm. of human biology.
I started uh, I started bird watching as a child, about ten years old, and uh, I got my first pair of glasses, and suddenly the earth came into focus around me, and uh, and within six months I was a bird watcher, uh, and I started with the obsessive uh, listing and keeping a list, and um, I was living in a small town in southern Vermont at that point, and uh, I trampled over hill and dale and all around to see as many birds as I could. Uh, and I got hooked on, on biodiversity. And one of the things that, as a kid, you, when you start uh, learning birds and learning bird songs, you're establishing mental circuits, a way of your brain working in the world that, that capture this kind of knowledge in an efficient way. It becomes how you think. And when I got to college, I thought, well, I knew that I was going to be involved in ornithology. And I actually imagined myself becoming like uh, a park ranger or running a refuge. I mean, I thought that's what it was. I, didn't re- I had a good education, but I didn't, have, I didn't know what science was as a life. And then I discovered that evolutionary biology was the field of science that was about what I uh, was really interested in, which was biodiversity and the origin of all the different birds that I had been sort of learning, right? And, and uh, I soon got influenced uh, uh, and interested in phylogenetics, the reconstruction of the phylogeny bird, which is a big revolutionary event that was happening right at that time. Um, and ultimately, I tried to combine my experience with bird watching with, um, with my interest in phylogenetics, and I ended up studying the evolution of courtship display in a family of South American birds called mannequins, spending a lot of time in the jungle uh, describing the, the courtship dances of birds that were prior to that time were only known from museum drawers, uh, that were not really known in life, and that was delightful. Part of that work was, uh, was listening and learning birdsong, and even from a young age I was always able to do that. Um, but uh, starting in uh, grad school, I had a uh, a sudden virus, idiopathic hearing loss, probably viral, attacked my right ear. And it took out everything above 1,500 hertz. That's about the middle high range on the right-hand side of a piano uh, overnight. Uh, about five or ten years later, I started to develop what's called Meniere's disease in the opposite ear, which is a problem with control of the endolymph, the fluid inside this, the ear, and essentially, ultimately lost all that hearing. So in the middle of my 30s, having made a career out of, out of studying birds in the field and studying their behavior, uh, I suddenly couldn't hear them any longer. And right now I'm pretty much ornithologically deaf. I can hear a crow, I can hear the bottom half of a robin, uh, but most of the bird songs of the world I can no longer hear. And uh, I suppose I could work on penguins, uh, but uh, that's not the kind of field work I used to do, which was uh, you know, working in the jungle acoustically, right? Um, so in the middle of my career, I had to develop a new connection to my life's work. Uh, and that was a big challenge, but that led to a fantastic series of, of research programs on, on feathers, on the evolution of feathers, on color, which I can still fortunately see really well. Uh, and uh, a whole new kind of research uh, emerged out of that. At the core of aesthetic evolution is the idea that organisms are aesthetic agents in their own evolution. In other words, if birds are beautiful, because they're beautiful to themselves. And that, that scientific conclusion actually has the power to transform our relationship to nature as, as people who can 
walk around in nature and regard flowers and listen to bird song and watch birds and, and, and appreciate them in a new way. So I think aesthetic evolution as a scientific concept has a power to really transform how we experience nature itself. And, and, and I know that my own bird watching has been transformed by this. When, I, when I'm looking at an indigo bunting, it's a beautiful blue bird, or a, a, a scarlet tanager, which is brilliantly red with black uh, wing patches and black tail, um, that imagining how they came to be through this, this, this coevolutionary dance between traits uh, of the male and the preferences of the female, uh, transform what that's like. So when you're listening to a wood thrush, this complex, fluty song, um, and, and, and realizing the, 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 the aesthetic process that's given rise to that, I think gives a, a, a transformative effect. And so I'm really hoping uh, that uh, this view of nature uh, gets out to the public and changes the way in which we, uh, we look at nature and gets people out more often to learn birdsong themselves and pick up that field guide and identify uh, those birds at the feeder or, 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 or that are migrating through in the spring. Um, and uh, even though uh, my own brain includes uh, you know, probably hundreds if not thousands of neurons dedicated to learning and knowing bird songs that I can no longer hear, uh, this, this exercise of going out into nature and observing it uh, as a human being, but understanding the science and the aesthetic lives of the organism themselves, it's, it's really a, really a special, special experience. And, and I hope that, uh, that this work will uh, encourage people to do that.